Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 161st episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Oh, my goodness, I am publishing this episode on April 18th. And in a little over two weeks, my new book, Dollop the Dream, Make Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood, will be officially launched into the world on May 5th, the Thursday before Mother's Day. I am having a really fun launch party, and I would love you to be there. It starts on May 5th at 10 Pacific Time, 11 Mountain Time, noon Central Standard Time, or 1 Eastern Time. And it will last maybe a couple of hours. I'm going to interview some of the moms from my book. I have some really fun giveaways Um Every 20 minutes, I'm going to give something away, and I'm going to give you some really great content. And here's the very cool thing is that this event is literally free when you pre-order Dial Up the Dream wherever books are sold, or you can pre-order my Audible book too. After you do that, you can go to dialupthedream.com and opt in, and I will get you registered. It would be so fun to see you face-to-face, and I will also have a time of Q&A where you can literally ask me anything. So give yourself this gift right before Mother's Day. I promise you, you'll leave encouraged. So if you have a daughter that is a junior, senior, or in her 20s, please come. You are welcome. Every week, I have highlighted a chapter from my book, and this week is chapter 10, and the title is Reconnecting to You. As you can see, it's taken me 10 chapters before I get to you. The beginning chapters are how to let go of your daughter, understanding the maturity gap, how to create a new foundation for relationship with your daughter, how to have those hard conversations, how to handle the setbacks how to make sense of your mothering story, and now we finally get to just you. Reconnecting to you can be a challenge for moms. I saw a mom this week in my private practice. She was in her 50s. Her daughters were in their 20s on the other side of the country, and she was there because she is having some struggles with her husband. But when I looked into her face, she seemed sad. It was bigger than her husband. And I asked her what she did. And she told me a few things and then just said, well, and that's all. That's all I do. But I could tell that she hadn't figured out what to do with the big emptiness when your daughters are really on their own. This is a beautiful woman, a talented woman who used to have a great career. She loved being a mom. And it seemed that now that her girls were on her own, that she had stalled out, that she was stuck She just didn't know what to do with her life. I've seen this happen a lot. You think, yay, I have my freedom back. But you don't know what to do with it. And you think, I have no idea what I want. 
So this chapter turns your attention back to you, starting with something totally doable, like your preferences, reconnecting with your authentic feelings, naming the things that you've outgrown. This chapter is the first step to you dialing up your dream. I am so excited about our guest today. I respect her deeply, and she has been a bright light in the parenting world for years. Her podcast with her husband, Zen Parenting, has over 600 episodes, which I consider a big wow. Kathy Kasani Adams, LCSW, co-hosts the Zen Parenting Radio podcast and is co-founder of the annual Zen Parenting Conference. She is a social worker and former elementary school educator from a family of educators a yoga teacher who is forever student when it comes to breathing and mindfulness. Kathy teaches in the sociology criminology department at Dominican University, and she lives outside of Chicago with her husband, Todd, and her three daughters. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Colleen. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, yes. I know you have three daughters. So what are their ages? My oldest daughter's 19. She just turned 19 a couple weeks ago. So it's a weird age to say. 17. I have a jun- She's a junior in high school. She's actually taking the SAT today. So I'm sending her good vibes. And then my youngest daughter is 14. Uh, she's in eighth grade and I just dropped her off. So I'm in the world of teenage girls right now. Yes, you are. So you're an expert. I consider yeah. you an yes. expert. <laughs> All right. So some days it feels that way. Some days not. (laughs) Yes. No, I get that. When I wrote my book, Dial Down the Drama, I started as like the expert clinician. And then um, then it became more real. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I was. No, I'm a mom in in the trenches. So. So, yes, I get that. Yes. Yes. Having having kids and doing this at the same time kind of keeps you very real and grounded. A lot of humility, a lot of (laughs) humility. Um, You know, the things that we, and it doesn't change our perspective or the things that we share with our clients. It just is the, the real work of it is an emotional experience. It's a mindfulness experience. And so it's just, it keeps me really humble because I realize when I'm talking with clients or talking on the show, what I'm asking them to do or what I'm offering, I know it can be difficult. It doesn't mean it's not, you know, it's good, but it has its challenges. Yeah. I think it's the hardest thing that you ever do. Mm -hmm. I just, Mm -hmm. I think parenting is the hardest thing. And it brings you to your knees, but it also is the greatest thing ever. But I think when done well, it, it grows us up as moms. Sure does. It sure does. Which is, you know, the whole thing about our, our, the podcast I do in this book that we're talking about Zen parenting, you know, kind of the best kept secret about it is yes, the word parenting is in there, but really this is all about us and us becoming kind of a new, a more self-aware, conscious version of ourselves, you know, recognizing our history, recognizing why we do what we do, why we say what we say. It really is the greatest mirror being with your kids. Um, and, And we hear that all the time, but the actual practice of it is ongoing. And even when we think we've kind of learned something big, which we all do, there's another iteration of it around the, you know, around the corner. Like it's so different even to go from a 10 year old to a 12 year old and how you respond to them. And then, you know, like I said, I have a 19 year old and now having that experience of she's an adult and how to shift to the way I experience her and how I show up. It's, it's ongoing. It is ongoing for sure. So your new book is called Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. So can you tell me a little bit about what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, you know, I, I've i written a few books before this, all self-published books, books that I was really just using with my clients, you know, things, stories basically that I was putting together to try and demonstrate the things I was talking about, how they look in practice. You know, they were more essays. 
And so that was really the first book I pitched was a, another book of essays. And, and the publisher came back to me and said, these concepts you're trying to talk about are wonderful, but can you put them together less of an essay form and more of like a chapter book? Like, you know, I think publishers tend to like the how-to version of things, you know, eight steps to this and 10 steps to that. And although I couldn't promise that because I don't really believe in that as a parent, I don't think that there's absolute steps for everybody. What I did say I could do was try and put together all of these concepts that I've been learning about for 20 years as a therapist or that I've been talking about for 11 years on a podcast, how to consider all of these different pieces. So the way that I figured out to do that, that was um, authentic to me was using the chakra system. I am a, as you said, I'm a social worker trained in a Western model, but I have a lot of Eastern philosophy in not only my own life and how I live it, but you know, how I practice. And so I'm a yoga teacher. I think a lot about energy. I think a lot about how we, you know, uh, the mindfulness experience being present. And so that to me felt authentic in how I see myself and other people, but I tried to not make it too esoteric. If you don't know anything about chakras, it doesn't, it, that's okay. Meaning it's really more of a scaffolding for the book of like, here's some pieces of parenting and this is how I'm going to put it together so it makes sense. And so you can see the overlap. But I really do, you know, for people who are interested in chakras overall, I really give some good ideas of other books they can read because this is really more about a structure of how to think about parenting in a more holistic way. Yes. What does it mean to have a Zen mindset while parenting? Mm. You know, this was my favorite part to write about. I actually spent the whole prologue discussing what Zen means. And, you know, to cut to the chase, it doesn't have a definition. Really, I think the way we talk about Zen, when we're just kind of using it in mainstream dialogue, is we think it means to be chill or calm, which isn't an awful thing. You know, Zen kind of has that feel. But really what Zen is about is paying attention to now being in reality and showing up in that reality. It really is a very, it's the easiest thing and the hardest thing as you know, most Eastern concepts are, but it's, it's less about being, because people will say, oh, I just don't know how to be Zen. I just, you know, because I can never be calm. I'm like that. We're not supposed to be calm all the time. I mean, that's ideal when talking to our kids, but we're going to have the full range of emotions. And that doesn't mean you're not Zen. That may be the most Zen thing because that's the truth of the moment is you feel angry or frustrated or overwhelmed. And that's that's not inherently a problem. The realization of that is actually what Zen is. You know, understanding that if we're angry, a boundary has been crossed, or if we're sad that something, we lost something we loved. So Zen is really about the nowness of our, you know, these, these words tend to get a little like they, they cross over each other where they start to lose their meaning. But it really is just showing up for what is and living in that reality. And I sometimes think as parents, we're so worried about the future of our kids, or we're so worried about our history and our background, that we impose that on our children, instead of showing up for who they are right now, and dealing with what is. So it gets a little messy in the conversation. But that's why I spent a whole chapter. So giving examples of, you know, the paradox of parenting, it's, it's yeah. very we have to deal with the light and dark of parenting. We can't be in a linear light all the time. Yeah. And that's not really held up in our culture. The culture wants us to be all light and productivity. But I think it's such a relief to say that there's light and dark in parenting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just takes the shame out of it for all the moms listening. So moms, if you have some dark in there, great. That's how it's supposed to be. Absolutely. And the, there's two ways that I look at that. The heal, like healing, I'm going to use the word healing in the sense that sometimes we really do have a, uh, a better understanding of ourselves when we become parents and we start to see our history or our trauma, which can feel really dark. We start to see patterns of behavior that maybe were not helpful in past relationships. So we have to be able to acknowledge that and see that dark to have a different option going forward to realize that's not how we want to participate. And then we have to be honest about not every day with our children is joy. There's a lot of boredom, especially when they're young. Yes. And then as they get older, there's a lot of having to hold ourselves in our adult 
selves, you know, to not, when we're talking to our 13 year old, to not go 13 with them, you know, we have to be the adult in the relationship and, but also acknowledge what we're experiencing is really hard and it may be really ugly and not what we expected, but it doesn't mean that, that we're doing it wrong. It just means that's the truth for that moment. And the, you know, I don't know about you, Colleen, but the way I know, understand light and joy is because I know the difference between it and darkness, meaning I've had hard times, loss, challenges, and I know what that feels like, which is why when I'm having a good day, I feel very grateful. And that does feel like joy because I've had the alternative. Like that's, that's the paradox of life. You can't know light without knowing dark. I completely agree. That's awesome. So what led you to tie our physical chakras to our innate rights? Well, you know, kind of the way that I look at self-awareness is like I kind of zone back from parenting even. And I just think about us, you know, as human beings and how, and I, I kind of start with this with chakra one with our right to be like, do our sense of worth, not just in like, do we have a career and are other people validating us, but do we understand that because we're here, because we arrived on this planet and it was like a billion to one odds that we could show up on this planet. I love those statistics where it's yes. like the, the possibility of you being born is like one in, in 10 billion. And so just that alone can give you a sense of you're supposed to be here, right? Yeah. Even if it, you know, just to enjoy the world. Again, I, people get this too tied up with careers. Don't you find where they'll be yes. like, I'm supposed to be here. What am I supposed to do? And it's like, well, just be here and be in relationship with people and, and love and appreciate. But that that is a right of being a human being. And when we start to look at that in that way, we have a different understanding of ourselves. And because this is around parenting, the more we have an understanding of our rights as human beings, then we look through that lens when we're with our children. So instead of believing we're supposed to create them and make them into something, we start to see their inherent rights, the likelihood of them being here, the mm. respect for the way they show up. Mm. And we start to help them not become something that we created in our brains about what our children will be, but we start to notice them and who they are going to be. And that's such a, that's a big shift. And that that's can a take a huge shift, right? Huge yeah. practice. And the, the, you know, so to your question about the rights is, it's very difficult to see our children in that way unless we see ourselves in that way first. Mm, you know, yeah. it's it, that's why it's such such a shift because if someone doesn't see themselves as being worthy or belonging or having a sense of self or sense of empathy, you know, I'm kind of going through all the chakras. Yeah. And they don't view their kid that way. Yeah. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. And it's really hard for moms because we're pressured to feel like our kids need to hit all these markers. Like you need to hit this marker, these data points and to let them be, that is really different. It is. And these external pressures that make sense. If you, I used to be a teacher. That was my job before I became a social worker and my whole family is teachers. Like that's, I've always been like educationally minded. When you look at you know, why our education system was created in the way it was, or why we have these developmental markers and milestones, it makes sense for the time, the meaning when the time they were developed. But when you really look at what we're doing now, we have kind of an old version of, of like our approach to education. And we're forgetting that really now in this time and space in 2022, what our kids need to know how to do is be out of the box thinkers, to be creative thinkers, to be able to have relationship with people, to be able to connect, to be able to have empathetic responses and compassionate responses. And that that's not what the markers are really showing us. They're just showing us test scores and like data points. And so it's it, that's a shift too. And that's the hardest shift, Colleen, I feel like, because then we tend to feel like we're going against society or against our neighbors, or against the, the teacher who is concerned about that our child is, you know, not reaching some kind of benchmark. So again, there's a, there's a nuance in here. It's not a binary of don't worry about education. It's just finding that, that space in between where what do you really want for your child? And I can tell you now that I have older children, the most important thing is their connection to themselves and their connection to others. And so having that relationship with them and them being able to develop relationships 
is how I'm watching them advance in the world. It's not because they got a 31 on their SAT. It's not mm-hmm. because they were the star of the soccer team. Those things are great. And if they happen, amen, enjoy it. It's not about it's bad. It's just, that's not it. It's, there's so, again, that holistic approach to seeing our kids yes. as full human beings. Yeah. So do you just even going back to what you were saying, the right to be like a, a, a mom has the right to be mm-hmm. and that their children have the right to be. When you just even think about that, I mean, I can even feel my body relax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, me too. I'm like rubbing my chest because it just doesn't that feel so, I don't know, the word safe comes to me. Like that's, that is, that is our right. We just, yeah. It's not always acknowledged and we don't always believe it. And a lot of that is because of our history. And and I'm using the word trauma. I know that that's used a lot now in in many different ways, but I really do believe that our our history in our birth families and, and, you know, whatever happened in the school system, whatever happened with other people really shapes us in such a way where we either believe we're worthy or not. We either believe our voice is valued or it's not. And it takes a lot of willingness to decide whether or not if what we learned when we were young is true. Meaning if we felt like we were, I'll just use myself as an example. Yeah. yeah. I um, grew up in a home where, like I said, lots of educators, but very Um, My parents were very, they were like older children and they were firstborns kind of. My mom had a sister, but it was like nine years apart. So she spent a lot of time by herself. And then my sister was more introverted and was very into books. I'm introverted too in many ways, but I'm a talker. Talk, 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 talk. And I think I drove everybody crazy. (laughs) And I also was very emotional and I was very sensitive. And that showed up in school. That showed up in my house. That showed, and there was a lot of like, especially in the eighties, I'm a Gen Xer. That wasn't something people wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear my perspective on how I felt about justice or how I felt about this person, you know, in this show and the things that were happening to them or how I felt about the kid on the playground who was getting bullied. There was a lot of like, Kathy, just, you know, and I had to, you know, and I got, and my voice got quieter. And as I got older and usually it started as we're discussing when I had children around my early thirties, I had to bring that voice back and recognize that I, it is what I'm saying or what I'm feeling is actually my asset. The fact that, that, I mean, I'm a therapist, like connecting with people and seeing things the way that I do is my skill set. But I had to question and kind of process what, you know, happened early, you know, in my life. And I'm just using very simple examples. You know, there, everybody has a much deeper, intense story. I have one I could share too, but that's the practice of recognizing your belonging is questioning what did happen and who you know yourself to be now. That's so rich. Yeah. I think one of the gifts that we don't consider is gifts from our teenage daughters, especially is that they call us out. (laughs) They are experts at calling us out. And, you know, my first response isn't thank you. You know, it's defensiveness and how dare you and all of that. But if I step back, I can really see that they're inviting me to grow as a person and that I'm limited or I'm blocked. There's a a proverb that says, just like a grinding wheel, so does one person sharpen another. And I think we as, as parents think we're sharpening our, we're just, it's going this one direction. But I find that our teens, who better than a teenage girl to call us out? Absolutely. <laughs> and honestly, what I know now, they know more than I do about their mm. generation. And that sounds really obvious. Like when I say it out loud, I'm like, of course they do. But there, we do have beliefs often as parents that we know more than our kids do about life. We know more about our lives and our experiences. So a lot of times we try to impose those experiences. Like if you do this, this will happen because that's what happened to me. And we can share that wisdom. I, you know, and again, we got to kind of live in that gray. There's no good, bad here. We can share our wisdom. But when my daughter is telling me about what's going on in her school or what's going on inside of her, she knows better than me. Mm-hmm. And so my work in that moment or my practice is to listen, to acknowledge, to 
to, as you said, to kind of think about, hey, that's something I haven't thought about, or, or the way I said that is not being heard the way that I'm trying, that my intention is. So yes. maybe I should be more thoughtful about my words. Maybe I should be more thoughtful about how I address people. And that that can be a, if you grew up in a, a certain environment, maybe a, a more authoritarian parenting environment, or you had more authoritarian kind of like figures around you where there was a, the hierarchy of parents know best, that can be a difficult shift. I, I don't know if you found that with your clients, but that's yeah. usually what I find is that, you know, my clients who grew up in a home where, you know, do as I say, not as I do, listen to me, top down model, that's a big shift right there. Yeah. You hear the mom say, I would have never talked to my mom that way. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a big shock. Yeah. So can we move on to like chakra two and talk a little bit about how that impacts moms and the kids and whatever you want to say about that? Chakra two is one of my favorites because the big, there's a big discussion around pleasure when it comes to chakra two and not just sexually, but just pleasure overall in life. Um, I find that women, I, I work only with women. So that's kind of why that's, you know, my focus, my husband, um, he works only with men. So we have very interesting conversations. So I find that women struggle with pleasure in that they feel guilty when they're enjoying something. Yes. <laughs> so it could be as simple as um, a TV show that they like to watch, like a reality TV show, a type of food that they like to eat, a, you know, the fact that they like to be alone rather than in groups of people. There's this feeling that they're always doing it wrong. And they use words to define that, like, you know, well, that's a guilty pleasure. Or, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, it's something like they'll have a book that they're reading and they're embarrassed, so they'll throw it under their bed. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that if something is enjoyable to you, that is, talk about a right, that is great. And it doesn't mean it's everything of yours. It's not like you're watching The Bachelor 24-7. But if that's something that gives you relief, if that's something that gives you a sense of connection with other people, it's not something we need to be embarrassed about. It's not something, you know, putting the word guilty on top of it somehow, you know, makes us feel like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And so that's a big part of chakra two. And that's, you know, a whole, that's such a big discussion. And then the other aspect is the creative impulses of chakra two. We are all innately creative people. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be a writer. It's not about those things that we kind of put into that like box of what art is. Creativity is about how you choose to do your hair how you choose to show up as far as like the colors you like to wear, how you decorate your home, how you, you know, what rings you wear. Like it's not, and again, it's not just all surface, but I'm just giving those as examples of we are innately creative beings. And Brene Brown did a lot of work around this. And I think she was taking the work of Stuart Brown, who actually did a lot of work around play and creativity. But we have this belief that once we become adults, that we don't need to be doing those things anymore, that coloring isn't important or that, um, you know, drawing or dancing are not things that adults do. When in reality, we need that. And I'm using the word need. You know, it's not just it would be nice. We need that to have to to embrace our full selves. And we don't need to do it on a stage. We don't need to dance on a stage. We may just need to dance in the kitchen or sing in the car but those are like healthy, wonderful ways to connect to what we love and connect to our body and bring that mind body back together. There's so many parts of creativity that allow us to thrive. Yes. Yes. And I'm just thinking in terms of all the work with the moms that I do is you're right. I think moms have a really big problem with the second chakra yeah. because, and, and when you ignore that, I think that's when moms feel dead inside mm -hmm. and they feel resentful and they're just dragging. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the difference between pleasure and numbing. Mm, oh, such a great question. Talk about nuance, you know. You know, the way that I actually have this part in the book where I use two examples where if you are having a piece of cake and you are eating it and enjoying it and appreciating it and you were looking forward to it and you're eating that piece of cake and it tastes good, that is pleasure. If you are eating that cake mindlessly because you are trying to shut down something you are feeling because you are, and you're doing it in a corner where nobody can see you and you're doing it because you're trying to avoid 
then the whole act of eating that cake changes. And it's very subtle. And, and there is a, you know, I can give a visual, but sometimes you have to know it's in your own body. Like I am choosing this cake. I'm excited about it. I'm looking for it versus I am going to run with this cake, hide with it and fill up my body with it. So I don't have to feel the anxiety I'm feeling. And it's true with, you know, with partners and, you know, sexual relationships. If you are, if you, if there is consent and you are appreciating and you are enjoying and you want to be a part of this, you know, partnership where you are having relationship with someone you care about, then you are fully present and there. If you are in relationship with someone and there, you know, there is things happening that you don't want to have happen, but you feel like you have no voice and you haven't consented to the things that are happening, there's a sense of you are detached, numbing from your body, or you are doing this for other people so you can feel better about you. So it's true with social networking. If you're scrolling because you're avoiding and you're barely reading, that's numbing. If you are posting pictures you know, of your business or, uh, you know, of a weekend you had with your college girlfriends to show that this is something I'm excited about, that's consciousness with social networking. So we tend to call things bad and good. Cake is bad. You know, social networking is bad, but they're not bad. They're neutral. It's yeah. how we're using them that gives yeah. them that, you know, good or bad vibe. Yeah, no, I love the nuance of that. Or like enjoying a glass of wine if you drink wine and you're tasting the wine and you're like, oh my gosh, this tastes really wonderful, but numbing, like you don't even taste it anymore. And so I think, you know, that you're getting into numbing is when you lose the pleasure. Exactly. The pleasure's gone. Yeah. And you almost forget you're doing it. Like how many clients have I talked to that said all of a sudden they were on their third glass of wine and they didn't even know it. Right. So they, just like you said, they, they lost the whole, they're not even connected to what they're doing. There's almost like a body action disconnected from what they're thinking or feeling. So that's versus the really tasting that first drink of red wine is pretty amazing. And, you know, really experiencing that and enjoying it is such a different experience. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and of course, you know, this really well, but how the chakras are built on each other. So the first chakra has you grounded and in your body and present so that you can have pleasure and creativity. So if you lose the groundedness, you lose really the great things of chakra two, right? Exactly. I love that. I love you, you know, recognizing that because there really is, you know, again, a linear pattern yet it can go back and forth and back and forth. So there is no like, once you get chakra one, you never have to go back. You may feel really have a sense of self and belonging. Maybe when you're, we'll talk about our teenagers, when they're in high school and they, they understand who they are and they know what they're doing. But then when they get to college, that first chakra of sense of belonging and sense of self gets a little lost. So they have to reroute, you know, to the ground yes. and find their self again. But to your point, yes, you really, this is a building. This is a, you know, like, for example, one of my favorites, which we'll probably get to, but is the fifth chakra, which is, you know, our ability to communicate. It's it's in the throat. And if you don't have an understanding of chakra one, two, three, and four, then you're not going to know what to speak, right? You know, it's like, yeah. that's where our bottleneck is because if we don't know who we are or have a sense of belonging or sense of self, how do we know how to communicate? So to your point, it is, it, there is a building. Yeah. Yeah. So in chakra three, the right to act, one of the things that you talked about, I think maybe we can go into is about energy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where I love, you know, part of what I love about writing this book is, like I said, I bring together a lot of kind of concepts that can be a little hard to grasp, but then there's just science and data, right? That makes it a little easier. We are energy. Like this is, this is physics. This is, you know, not a debatable thing, but it is something that we often forget <laughs> that mm -hmm. our energy and what we are bringing into every situation is then going to create a dynamic. A lot of times, you know, the parents I work with, there's a lot of, well, I'm showing up and my kid says this and my kid does this and my kid, and, and this can be very difficult for parents. But my first question is, how were you showing up? Because I'm hearing how your kid is, but were you feeling grounded and calm in that conversation? Did you show up coming down the stairs 
yelling? And is that how it began? Mm -hmm. Because the energy we bring to every situation, there's a lot of reciprocity in that. Meaning if we, if we are coming at our kids with anger, they will come back with anger. And that is not because, you know, to your point before about, you were talking about how we'll say, I would have never said that to my parent, or I would have never been disrespectful. It's actually like a thing, a decision our brain makes. There's like a sense of like, it's, it's literally called reciprocity where when someone comes at you, you come back at them the same way. And so while that can be really daunting, now we can turn it around and say, if you come at your child calmly, they tend to come back calmly. Doesn't mean it's all resolved in that moment, but we can be the leaders in how we're presenting ourselves when we're ready to talk to our kids, especially about difficult things. Yeah. You know, we have to take responsibility for the energy we bring. Yes, absolutely. A very convicting question that one of my friends asks is, what's it like to be on the receiving end of me? Mm -hmm. What a great question. Isn't that a great question? Yeah. Yeah. And did, when she asked that question, were people able to be honest with her? Hopefully there was lots of positive, but can she hear maybe the full breadth of what that question you know, the answers she may get. Well, it takes you back to all the things we're talking about, but it takes you back to, oh my gosh, I'm not even aware of the energy I bring into a room. Mm -hmm. And, oh, like that day, it would have not been a great thing to be on the receiving end of me. It's not shaming. Like you, you said, it's like when we can become aware, we can change. And like you talk about in your book, and I'm, I'm a big person in terms of intention, we can, live with intention instead of reaction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that right there, intention, is the beginning of mindfulness. It's everything. I mean, you know, we were talking about Zen before. What is the intention? And if you know that first, that really helps with what you want to communicate. Like, for example, I say to my clients when they yell at their kids to be kind, that doesn't make sense because your intention is to talk about kindness and the importance, yet you're yelling to, so the intention is not matching, you know, what you really want to share. And so mindfulness is just even being able to recognize in this moment, what is it that I need to share? Because if you're not being mindful, then you're being reactive. And a lot of it is coming from your history. A lot of it is coming about your fears of the future. So you're not even really quite sure. All you're doing is just disengage. You're just allowing every thought you have to come come out and often, unfortunately, um, land on your child. And so that is, you know, we were talking about at the very beginning, that's what, when we talk about parenting being, you know, hard work, and I'm putting that in quotes, it is a big thing to respond instead of react because response necessitates that breath before that consciousness that how do I want to respond versus you made me mad. Therefore I'm going to yell at you. That's reactive. Yes. So this is, it's a journey and it is a practice. Yeah. I I like to say that parenting is a spiritual discipline. Mm, Absolutely. So we have an acronym called think. And the first one is T is it true? Yeah. So is what you're about to say, if it be with your child, with your partner at work, is what you're about to say true? And many of us will be like, well, I'm thinking it, it's true. But a lot of times it's our feeling. It's, we don't know for sure if it's true. Like when we start to say things like, you never do anything for me. Is that true? That's the first question. So that's the T. H, is it helpful? Yeah. So you may be having a thought or feeling And you may want to share it, but is it going to help this person in front of you? Is it going to shame this person in front of you? Are you just trying to one-up this person in front of you? So really kind of questioning is what I'm about to say helpful. This is especially true with children because a lot of times Mm -hmm. we dump things like, did you sit next to anyone at lunch today? Well, do you think you should have? And it's like, is that helping them or is that causing them more stress in the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I, is it inspiring? Yeah. So I really like this one in, because sometimes I have things, it's very similar to the helpful and that I have things that I want to share, but telling my girls every morning about what's going on in Ukraine 
or what's going on in, you know, a challenge in our own community. I'm not saying we don't discuss it because I think that's very important, but deciding that every conversation I'm going to dump things that are heavy or challenging or difficult for them to process may not be the best choice. We want to maybe offer things that can promote their ability to get through the day that can inspire them to achieve what they want to achieve. And so it's just one of those little reminders, like, am I about to say this just because I want to release it or because it's actually, you know, inspiring to people? Yeah, no, that's good. And is it necessary? Yeah. So is what I'm about to say to my kids something I need to say, or is it something I feel justified in saying? And I'm using the word justified because parents use that word with me. You know, what I'm about to say is justified, meaning like if we look around and there's a lot of shoes at the door and they haven't been put away, do we launch into a big tirade about how we do everything around the house and how nobody puts their shoes away and how nobody cleans the bathroom? It becomes this like where we just need everyone to hear how difficult things are. And believe me, I feel this way sometimes. This is not about that don't feel this. This is about, is it necessary to say out loud? I save a lot of those conversations for sometimes when my partner and I are talking with my own therapist, with my friends, like it's okay to have that release. But sometimes when we're talking to our kids or we're in a family setting, that's not necessary right now. It's just not necessary for the conversation. Right, right. Okay, is it kind? Yeah, I mean... I think the the word that I hear most from parents when I ask them, how do, what do you hope for your children? What do you hope they learn? Who do you hope they become? Kind is always in the top five, you know? Um, and if our children are going to learn what kindness is, they need it role modeled and they need to have a back and forth experiences in our communication with them, with what kindness looks and feels like. Kids don't learn kindness because we shamed them into it. They may learn a fear-based way of managing life, which is pretending and, you know, being, you know, skittish and nervous. And so they're showing up in a people-pleasing kind of way. But true kindness needs to be experienced and felt and ideally with the parents. So, you know, if we're able to have that kind of communication with our kids where we are being kind and recognizing things that they've done or recognizing, you know, their hard work and, and calling that out. Um, that really helps them do that going forward with their peers and with their, you know, future relationships. Mm, that's so good. So we have time for about one more chakra. So which one would you like to talk about? Oh, gosh, what a great question. Um, let's talk about the heart chakra. Okay, let's great. Talk about four. Okay. If you were, you can actually see my house because I know not everybody can see it because we're, they're listening to a podcast, but I have green walls everywhere in my house, different shades of green, um, you know, much to my family's like, they're like, okay. Um, but <laughs> the reason why is because green is the color of the heart chakra. All of these chakras have colors that, you know, connect to them. And green is our, it's our open-heartedness. Mm. It's our connection to ourselves and others. It's our empathetic responses. And interesting because we were talking about paradox and light and dark, it's also our grief. Mm -hmm. So love and love, I always like put my hands together and I'm always like love and grief are like two sides. You know, it's like mm -hmm. a coin. If yeah. we love things and people and times and whatever it may be, we are inevitably going to experience grief because the part of life that we most struggle to deal with is the fact that things change and end. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, it's part, I do a whole thing in the book about death and that's a whole nother thing. That's a whole nother ball of wax, but it's even about our children will not always be in kindergarten. They will not always be in middle school. They will graduate from high school. They will, they will be in a partnership where they may not spend Thanksgiving with us anymore. Things are supposed to change. So our love is very connected to our grief and honoring grief as a therapist. That's kind of always been my, my spot that I really focused on. I'm a, I also teach at a university and I talk to my students about grief a lot because I don't think it gets the respect it deserves. And unfortunately in the new modified DSM five, it's actually become even more of a pathology in the mm -hmm. meaning it's being pathologized. It isn't yeah. a pathology, but it's being more, you know, talked, they're now talking about long-term grief and that 
that's got a new diagnosis. And we're trying to like pathologize something that is actually the solution to our pain is grief. That's the solution, not the problem. So this process of um, having an expression about the things that we lose and having, you know, it's part of the reason that I like um, things like graduations or, you know, um, when my girls turned 13, I had um, a party for each of them with a bunch of women in my life. And we like acknowledge them turning 13. And there was a lot of love in that, in that you're becoming a young woman and here's some people for you to connect with and that love you. And it was also a rite of passage and a grieving of, I see that you're not a child. Yes, you are still young and you are not a woman yet, but I'm noticing the change in time and I want you to notice it too. And we can acknowledge these rites of passage. So I guess the reason, obviously, you know, love is where we always want to be. We always want to, you know, if you point to yourself, you point to your, you know, if you point to yourself right now, you point to your heart, that's who we are. But there's also that acknowledgement of there is pain in love. And if we can accept that, instead of pretend it shouldn't be there, then I feel like life is less daunting, still has challenges, but it's less daunting. Yeah, yeah. So I have a book that's about to be launched on May 3rd. Yay! Yes. And so it's called Dial Up the Dream, Make Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. So it's really kind of picking up at 17, 18 through the mid-20s. Because I think those are really confusing years for moms of like, and it's exactly what you're talking about, that there is grief, there is letting go, but it's not all, it's not a death. Right. And so I think that is what's confusing. Like, what's my role, where I am, but it is an ending of a time period. Mm -hmm. And so I think it gets so confusing. So it's like... It's an ending, so I'm not needed. 18 means I'm not needed, which the reason I even wrote the book is that, you know, that prefrontal cortex is not developed until 25. And so they're still kind of stumbling forward into adulthood. But the grief, if it's not really looked at, can cause a lot of problems in that relationship. And it's so easy. And I felt it myself to kind of take things personal. Like, why isn't she getting back to me when she's doing exactly what she needs to be doing? Exactly. Exactly. And recognizing that as parents, um, especially as moms of daughters, our role is shifting, but it's still essential. Yes. And so it's like this piece where we allow, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you know, grasping too tight. We kind of hold it really loosely and allow it to evolve rather than say, but two years ago, you would have invited me to that. And now it's like, but we're now maybe in a different role. And if we can continue to allow for that shifting and changing, we actually get closer because our daughters, our children, trust us with their full selves, that they don't feel like they have to pretend or take care of us or make sure that we're okay all the time, that they know they can show up and share what they want and and then maybe have some time where they're not with us because they need that too. Yes. It's such a, and, and I, I'm, I'm so glad you wrote a book about that, Colleen, because that is a time period that we don't talk about that much. And we kind of, it's kind of like when kids graduate from high school or we're like, okay, bye. You know, like we raised you and it's like, oh, there is so much more to come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you have such great wisdom and I really hope moms that you will get this book because it really will bless you. So Kathy, do you have any last advice for the moms listening? You know, just to reiterate a word I used over and over again while talking to you is that everything is a practice and that you have days where you do have a sense of mindfulness and connection and you feel so, you know, like, wow, I'm really, I'm really doing this parenting thing. Great. I had a great conversation with my kid. And sometimes the next day, whatever's happening in your world makes it more challenging. And that doesn't mean you're failing. Mm -hmm. It means that day has a different vibe, a different energy. Your child had different needs. There might be different things going on inside of you. And in this is where, you know, we really jump in and this is a big part of 
empathy too. And the the fourth chakra is self-compassion, you know, that it's okay. It's okay. Because one of the best things we can teach our kids, and, and this is in partnership too, is how to repair when we are challenged and maybe don't say the right thing, or we do yell, repair is a big part of love, of going back and saying, that was rough or you know, this morning I was really in a bad mood and sorry that got directed at you and teaching our kids how to repair because they're human beings just like we are and they need to see us kind of bobble it sometimes and and lose our way so they know how to get back on the path. So let's just be compassionate with ourselves as moms is the bottom line. I'll give you an amen for that. Yes, amen. Thank you. All right, so I'm assuming that If a mom is interested in finding your book, they could find it anywhere books are sold. Anywhere books are sold and everything that I do, and I do a lot of my work with my husband, we do Zen Parenting Radio together, is at zenparentingradio.com. So the book is everywhere, but it's also at zenparentingradio.com and they can find our other resources as well. Yeah. I will say to the moms listening is that I really respect Kathy's podcast in that her and her husband have been doing it for 11 years. Is that right? 11 years. Yes. Yes. A long time. And we talk about evolving. You know, it's really kind of funny to listen to our, you know, and I I can't even get access to our first episode. I don't even know where that's located these days, but to see, you know, the shifting and the changing, because my girls were very little when we started, Mm. you know, three, five and eight, I think. And, you know, now I have much older kids and to see how parenting evolves you, it's very obvious in our podcast. It's it's lovely. <laughs> it's difficult and lovely. You know, they, again, they're both sides of the coin. So, but yes, thank you for that, Colleen. I appreciate it. Yes. So thank you so much for your time today. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.